Welcome to Eventful, the podcast for meeting professionals. I'm your host, Lauren Edelstein with North Star Meetings Group. Eventful, the podcast, is our way of inviting you to join some of the interesting conversations we have with people in our business about topics that really should be on your radar. I look forward to hearing what you think, and please be sure to subscribe. At a time of such unpredictability, disruption, and risk, it's hard for even the most experienced meeting planner to feel confident when making major decisions. To help explore how planners can make these tough choices, on this episode of Eventful, the podcast for meeting professionals, we reached out to Vikram Mansha Ramani, Harvard lecturer and author of the just-released Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. He spoke previously at North Star Meetings Group's SMU International at the end of February, just as the threat of the coronavirus was beginning to be understood. At that time, he told the audience of meeting planners and suppliers, This is a turbulent time, but there's always been turbulence. That's not the issue. The issue is how you think about it. While things have changed significantly since then, that statement still holds true. Today, Vikram shares the biggest risks he sees for the travel and business events industry now, and explains why it's important to avoid outsourcing our decisions to others, even those with greater expertise than us. He walks listeners through decision-making strategies and describes why at this time when nobody has all the answers, planners ultimately must make big decisions themselves. I think this unfortunately is a dynamic where there's going to be a uh, sort of a, re- a residue, a residual negative headwind to the industry for a period of time. That just comes from the blunt reality that we're having an economic contraction right now. And the economic contraction has always correlated with a drop off in travel and and conferences and events. Um, That's always been the case because it's, it's a little bit difficult for companies to reach into their pockets and spend money on things that have a longer return on investment when they're letting people go. It's harder to have celebratory sales win stories and incentives when you're letting large numbers of your own employee base go. So I think that's a little bit of a headwind that's here to stay for some period of time because of the economic reality of the world we're in. Add on top of that, the public health concerns that continue to exist for dense population or dense gatherings and and those environments. And so, you know, you have to stop and ask, would the ordinary corporate executive jump on a plane with a lot of people? Presumably the planes have people, but maybe not as much these days. Maybe they space them, et cetera, um, to go fly across the city, to get into a car with an owner they don't know, probably an Uber, maybe a taxi, to go to a hotel and sleep in a room where they don't know who was there the night before, they don't know how it was sanitized or cleaned or what have you, to then get up and go to a crowded ballroom and eat from a buffet line where there's lots of people um, at the same time. I think that's a really tough pitch to make to some executives to go to large events. Now, with that said, the lockdowns and the quarantines that have taken place have also shown us how important it is for human-to-human interaction, and we want it. We're craving those relationships. Mm -hmm. So I think in the short run, I suspect the number of events will be fewer. They may be smaller, but they're not going to zero. It may be internal people. It may be other meetings. There may be other gatherings. I mean, I do a lot of big conference speaking at keynote type conference events. 
And while those haven't happened as much, I don't do any in-person events. I haven't really since the middle of March. There's a lot of virtual events. And so there's gatherings in different ways. And there's still this desire to interact with peers and colleagues, etc. The experiment of trying all this virtually has shown that for some things, virtual works well. Not for everything, but for some things. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another bite that's being taken out of the meetings and event uh, business uh, going forward. Now, the reason I don't think it's a permanent change is I do think, and I'm optimistic, although I'm not a public health expert nor a medical professional, that I do think we're going to find our way towards a solution to this current public health crisis. And that means we may find ourselves, whether it's a year from now with a vaccine or treatment before then, or even if it takes longer than that, this is not a permanent state. And I think we will slowly return to our ways of traveling and gathering because we do enjoy human-to-human interactions. I think something that you mentioned at your address back in late February was was the idea that we should be investing in relationships. And I, I can see that really applying now, even if events are virtual, if we're talking about maybe having to rethink the size of the event that had initially been planned. It seems like at root, that idea of investing in relationships is still what should be a priority, especially if you're thinking of in the long run. That's right. And and not only a comeback in the long run, but it's going to sort of make the, the sort of valley shallower, if you will, right? Because relationships are the means through which you do things that may not immediately be obvious, but are for a long-term benefit of both parties. Well, I'll give you an example from the cattle industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, seemingly different industry, but similar partnership relationship dynamic at work. So today, because there was a cutback in mm-hmm. processing facilities of livestock, there was oversupply of live animals going into the processing facilities. And so if you were a large uh, meat packer, you would potentially say, well, I don't have to pay as much for each live animal. And there'd be oversupply. And then suddenly the, that whole business of being in the, the sort of cattle business, you'd be losing money every day. You'd go out of business. And so the, you know, the meat packers and the processors didn't want that to happen. And so they paid a little bit more than they otherwise had to, to maintain those relationships. Um, and likewise, I can imagine the same sort of supply chain partnership logic in the travel and meetings business, which is, okay, we understand that we could probably squeeze the hotel company because there's no demand right now that we could squeeze them down and get to really low pricing. And maybe that's beneficial for us in the short term. Alternatively, a relationship may be that, look, we're going to pay you more than we have to right now, but we want to discount later. So we're going to help you smooth it out. So we're all getting the same economics over the long run, but because of the relationship and trust We're going to help you when you're feeling the pain. And later when we feel the pain, we want some benefit back. And so those types of relationships can only happen when there's a strong, um, you know, uh, partnership mentality, which only comes when you have a relationship. So, you know, I think that's an example of how you can imagine it being beneficial to those in the travel business to build those relationships. Mm -hmm. And how that's going to be vital at this time and could really help foster the the return once circumstances allow for that. 
That's right. I think it's a quicker path to recovery. It's probably a shallower uh, valley to cross uh, during the hard times, etc. So yeah, I agree with that. What areas of the travel industry and the meetings industry do you think are sort of most vulnerable right now, looking at it from a global perspective, long term, once we get to a point where the actual event can happen again, even with social distancing and these various precautions? Are there areas you think just won't come back? Are we going to go back to uh, the same meetings being held in person with the same number of people in each meeting? I think that's a ways off. Um, I do think the virtual is going to have a dent because we're we're finding ways to improve our interactions online. Um, and so maybe it's less frequent meetings. Uh, maybe it means internal company meetings are held less frequently in person because uh, you can virtually do that. And if you had 10 sales meetings a year, uh, maybe you can go to five. You still get the in-person benefits. And if you've got strong enough relationships, then you can do the other five virtually. Um, I think dynamics like that are going to kick in in the short run, and we're finding the efficiency value of being able to sit at your desk and effectively interact with lots of other people is actually not, I mean, it's not as good as in person, but it's but it's not that bad. Um, and we're finding more and more value that way. So I think that will be indeed a dent. How large a dent, I can't say, but it's a dent. I hear a lot of planners talking about finding ways to incorporate the best practices they're learning from having to kind of learn virtual meetings on the fly right now, being able to make those those lessons apply that to when we're able to have live events and maybe create sort of a mix. Yes, I think that's right. I think we're seeing hybrid events. I'm already seeing some. So I've uh, I continue to give talks to corporate boardrooms and uh, as well as gatherings. Uh, so we'll give you an example. There was a company of essential workers and, you know, one of the sponsors for this large organization said, listen, we want to just provide some context, economic context for this group of essential workers that's that's really been working hard and we want to sort of reward them with some, um, some, some external comments, some external speakers, some stimulation outside of their day-to-day job and help them contextualize what's happening and how important their work is. And so they were in person, I was virtual, uh, but they also had other virtual attendees as well because it wasn't the same time for everyone to work. So, you know, hybrids like that are happening. I think there are gonna be more and more of those hybrids. And I think the value of virtual is uh, geography doesn't matter. You know, I can easily incorporate and I can have a discussion with, or even you can have a roundtable discussion with people from all the continents on the planet where they're, you know, if they got an internet connection, they can jump on. So you may even have more robust events with more interesting personalities uh, at lower cost because there isn't the travel, there isn't the sort of uh, all the expenditure associated with that. So, you know, I do think hybrid events are coming and, you know, I think they're starting to see them already. Different destinations are having very different trajectories and coming back at different paces, but there are some real tangible movements, uh, you know, forward. It, it, it was just today or yesterday that Berlin now is allowing for groups of 150, and uh, soon, uh, and, and New Zealand is looking at opening up to gatherings of all sizes. Globally, do you think this is going to be kind of a patchwork? Do, do, where, where do you and where do you think the U.S. is is sort of on that on that pathway? 
Yeah. I mean, look, a global perspective suggests that there's not going to be one universal opening date, right? Everybody's in a unique situation. Every country's in a more unique situation. There's different value systems, some that are more totalitarian uh, government approaches, which are hard and fast and, and maybe more effective at containing something like a virus quicker. Uh, there's others that are more individual rights protections and, and other freedoms, which uh, may slow the ultimate containment of a virus, but it doesn't mean it won't get contained. Um, we had an economic patient that had pre-existing conditions, right? We had too much debt. We had gotten, you know, we had started to see some signs of bubbliness in certain asset markets. Uh, we had all the things I talked about at the North Star meeting. Uh, or at the SMU meeting, excuse me, um, there in uh, February, right? Which mm -hmm. is, you know, there was an elevated risk of a recession. There were all sorts of reasons to be concerned across the board. So we had an economic patient that had pre-existing conditions. And then we had the virus hit and we put that economic patient into an induced coma, right? We did a shutdown. We literally shut down the global, or at least the American economy, uh, but other countries did the same thing. And so, you know, you had basically an induced coma. And then to prevent the patient from dying and to hope the patient could come back to life and minimize the impact of the coma, we had massive stimulus, monetary and fiscal, uh, handouts as well, safety nets, protection, purchase the paycheck protection program. All of this was effectively adrenaline given to a patient with pre-existing conditions who was in a coma. And now we're going to try to bring the patient out of the coma slowly. And what's going to happen? I don't know. I wish I could tell you, Alex, I really do. What I can tell you is certain parts like the, you know, the, the stock market, for instance, seems to be thinking that the patient's going to run a marathon the minute he leaves the hospital or she leaves the hospital. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty aggressive, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that's a pretty aggressive assumption. So I think economically we've got really strong headwinds. Unemployment is high and going higher, right? We know that as this paycheck protection program rolls off the end of June, that unless we get more, from Congress to support a continuation of it, that we're going to see unemployment continue to rise. The government budget deficit is enormous and rising. I've studied countries around the world where I see a budget deficit of double digits as a percentage of GDP of that country, and I am worried that that country is going to collapse. The United States has blown through a double digit. We're no longer at nine, 10% of GDP. We're looking at 15, 20, or even higher percentage of GDP as a budget deficit. The data is not even all out yet. And mm -hmm. So these are big economic headwinds. Um, you know, that's different, of course, than the financial markets. So economically, I would say it's very clear we have big headwinds for some period of time. And I would imagine the recovery from that will take some time. On uh, your your book just uh, is coming out uh, and kind of 
speaks pretty well to this moment. I, I would I would think uh, the the title is "Think for Yourself: Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence." Uh, now, this is obviously an interesting time when we are relying on experts for so many areas, uh, whether that's economic or public health. Maybe you can start and just tell us a little bit about what the the book is all about and why now, why the the message really kind of would resonate in a, in this moment of disruption. Yeah, look, I wrote Think for Yourself for one reason. I wanted it to help people make decisions in the face of uncertainty. And it so happens to be that we are in a very uncertain time. Um, I wish I could claim credit for planning this. I didn't. I wrote this book well before these current dynamics. Um, but But the logic of the book is we are drowning in information and data and choices As a result of so much information and so many choices, what we do is we turn to experts, those who understand certain pieces better than we ever will, and we look to them for advice. But in the process, oftentimes we've stopped thinking. We just blindly follow the advice of experts. And that's really what I have trouble with. I think it is very problematic to turn off your brain and just do what an expert says. It's equally problematic, by the way, to dismiss an expert and not pay attention to what they say. I think that's also a problem. And so what I'm suggesting is a more nuanced view, which is we need to keep experts on tap, but not on top. It's the title of one of my chapters. Mm. And the essence of it is, we should be using expert input to decide a path forward for ourselves. But we are responsible for understanding the big picture story and the context in which we're making our decisions. And so it's, it's not fair to have an expert carry the burden of the context because by definition, an expert is narrow and focused And they won't see what's happening in other areas of our lives or other areas that may be impacted by the decision we're going to make. So we need to see the big picture because no expert will. Yeah. And I I think that has a lot of resonance for meeting planners right now and event planners because so much there's no hard and fast rule right now. And, and obviously within, within certain, uh, restrictions, whether depending on the state or the country, there's going to be legal restrictions on how large events can be and when they can start taking place. But the folks we're speaking to, it, it's it's really comes down to a judgment call based on the best information you can gather. And I imagine that's that's really the time where you can't necessarily put one expert and make that your your sole decision based on that one piece of input. It, it's kind of a holistic approach that ultimately comes down to the planner having to make that decision themselves. That's right, Alex. I think the planner needs to integrate the views of various experts, balance them, and, you know, one phrase I use is we need to triangulate by using multiple perspectives. So for each particular meeting, there's a likely set of issues that will rise. You know, if you're holding a meeting of, um, you know, significantly uh, skewed demographically towards older people, well, you might be a little more cautious if you've got a demographic that's a lot of younger folks, well, maybe you might be a little more willing to get together sooner. So I think there's, there's trade-offs like that that 
you can tap into expertise to form your own opinion. But ultimately, I think meeting planners should think for themselves by tapping into multiple forms of expertise and making sure they, they, they triangulate to get a view that's appropriate for their decision. And this idea of triangulation, that's, that's helpful. Is there other tips or, or best practices that you recommend in your book or, or just model? Sure or decision-making that that might fit for a meeting planner? Sure. Uh, It's one of the things I recommend for people facing tough decisions in the face of uncertainty. Look, the the book is filled with different strategies, but here's one that I think might resonate. Imagine failure. That's a tough thing to do. Most people want to imagine success. Mm -hmm. I'm suggesting that you imagine failure. So think about the fact that you are, let's say someone's contemplating, oh, I want to have a meeting next September, should I move forward? I got to request the deposits. I've got to, or I mean, I've got to request deposits back or I got to put deposits down or what have you. Um, should I move forward or not? Well, I don't know what things are going to be like then. Well, okay, let's just play it out. Imagine you go forth and you have a meeting and in October it is deemed to be a massive failure. Why? Think about the possible scenarios that would result in failure. Number one, corporations held a lockdown that were tighter and company boardrooms said, you know what? We don't care that the states are opening up. We have to keep our people safe. They're not going. Number two, people come but get sick because public health standards are not okay on the airports or in the transportation system or even once they get there. Number three, imagine something goes wrong when people are there. One person comes in and, you know, doesn't socially distance or something happens and, you know, more people get. Or number four, the thing goes really well at the time, you get a lot of press. And then afterwards, people go back and because they're asymptomatic, they then start spreading. And now you got a whole nother big wave and it gets tagged to this particular event. I'm reminded of what happened with Biogen in Boston. You know, no one imagined that as a risk or outcome, but it happened. And so what I'm thinking is it would be useful for people to imagine failure and the possible paths that could lead to failure. And then if you can get comfortable that you can manage those multiple paths, well, that's going to help you understand the risks you're actually bearing. So it's a different way to frame the problem and to think it through especially in a time like this where risk really is the biggest question mark. Obviously, you can imagine the greatest success that the event could be, but now it's probably wise to think of all the ways it could potentially go wrong and what risk you're comfortable with. That's right, Alex. And so in my book, again, like I said, there's lots of strategies, but one of the strategies is to use what I call a pre-mortem analysis. And that's exactly doing this. Imagine failure, but imagine it before it happening. Because by thinking about it before, you're probably going to be more likely to avoid it. I hate these post-mortem analyses because, well, we've already failed. <laughs> That's right. not, I mean, like, okay, maybe next time we won't fail, but I don't want to have this failure on my hands. So let's do the pre-mortem analysis rather than a post-mortem. As far as weighing various pressures, how, how, because, because planners have maybe, you know, obviously the revenue is, is a, a, a major concern, a, a t- attendee health, there are various other stakeholders of, of these events with who all have their priorities. What's, what's a way to think for yourself when you've got all these pressures coming from multiple sides to make really, you know, what could be a life or death decision in some, some cases? I'll tell you how I manage those risks is I would put health first above all else and, you know, revenue and other things like that, secondary. Mm -hmm. Uh, But 
you know, I also can understand and appreciate that there's pressures that some may feel differently. And, you know, there, you know, we don't live in a risk-free world. We never have. And so you're going to balance risks and, you know, how and what level of acceptable risk is appropriate for which meeting planner. That's not for me to judge. Thanks, Vikram. I think that that kind of hit the main points I wanted to cover. Obviously, it's a huge Excellent. topic, but uh, is there any other thoughts you have on on this and, you know, particularly the meetings and travel industry specifically as you're kind of thinking more big picture? No, look, I think the big picture conclusion I would say is this, this the business will come back. Uh, it's important to look through some of this noise. Uh, this noise may be with us longer than you'd want, maybe longer than other sort of uh, storms like this have had in terms of duration, but it'll pass. This too will pass. And thinking through how to use this current pause as an opportunity to position for a better future, I think is a really, really healthy way to spend time today. Um, And as I've said before, I think that means deepening relationships, the stuff that can't get automated away, um, and focusing on uh, developing a network that enables you to think for yourself. I mean, ultimately, that is the way to, to navigate through uncertainty is to think for yourself. Um, and so that's, that's what I wrote about, and that's the advice I'd give. Excellent. All right. Good note to end it on then. Thanks so much, Vikram, for taking the time to chat. So appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review us and check back for new episodes soon. 